Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Chronicles, a podcast about real people with real stories having real conversations on health. For those that didn't get a chance to listen to the teaser trailer we just released, this is our first episode of season two. We are still here, we're still learning a lot, there's a lot going on in our lives and in the world. So we're keeping things shorter, more focused, less formal. So yeah, thanks for continuing to listen. Enjoy. It's great to be back. Hey everyone, it's Michaela. Hey everyone, it's Joab. And Maya. Yeah, it looks like it's just the three of us for now, but we'll see how we go. So for our first episode of season two, we really wanted to talk about some of the language we use in advocacy and in how we talk about the lived experiences of of young people, the lived experiences of uh, people affected by mental and physical ill health. COVID-19, for instance, has put a really big spotlight on engagement of young people, engagement of people within the health systems. But we wanted to talk about the language that we use in today's episode, especially as relatively young people who are in the health space advocating and sharing our stories and just discuss the kind of barriers that we come up against when it comes to the terminology that we use and any language that we really like or that we think is really inspiring. When when Michaela had kind of thrown this out to us as something she was thinking a lot about, um, one of the words that she mentioned was what our thoughts were on empowerment, to empower people to use that as I think it was engagement and empowerment were the two words that she had thrown out there. And I think it triggered an interesting sort of thought spiral for me because it's one of the words that I've been consciously trying to use less. And mm-hmm. some of it is responding to where other people have reacted against against empowerment as a word. And some of it is, is just, is it framed in the way that it should be? To, it, it almost feels like it's a kind of to empower is to kind of charitably give power to to people who don't have it or like that that those of us in power can give power to other people or it it just feels like it reinforces all of the all of the dynamics that we're trying to get away from in advocacy and so something that I've started to use more and more is kind of amplifying the voices of or I know in the NCD space we use meaningful involvement a lot I, I work at Partners in Health, and we use the word accompany, kind of walking alongside and, mm-hmm. and thinking about things in a very shared perspective, but those might not be right either. And so it, it just, once you start unpacking the language, it, you can just keep going further and further into, yeah, I don't know. It, it, Job, what have you been thinking about? Well, I do agree partly with what you've said about some of the language we use in the advocacy, specifically the health advocacy space. And I never really thought about it because I came into the advocacy space quite late. You know, I came in when I was in my 20s. And uh, I just thought that empowerment, as you say, kind of gives the impression that it's, you know, it's kind of like a pity kind of, you don't have the power and so you're giving it to them like, charity-wise, but when I thought about the discussions in the WhatsApp, I thought about the barriers that these people are facing. So the reason why we use the word empower is because the people who are in question don't have power. And so instead of looking at those people, we should look at the systems around them and say, okay, these people, why, why are they in this situation? 
I'd give an example of us, you know, like for me living with chronic kidney disease and the, the challenges I face as a person living with chronic kidney disease, it's like the system, how it's built, is more for healthy people. And even policy-wise, the people who make decisions with the power, most of them, I don't think any of them has chronic kidney disease. And so they're the ones with the power making those decisions. So you need to look at how we can break down those inequalities mm-hmm. rather than empowering, kind of like look at the system that creates these inequalities and make it where anybody can valuably give insight or change the policy and change the yeah change the system to accommodate them better instead of saying like let's empower these people let's for me it's more about breaking down the inequalities in the system so that someone like me can meaningfully be in, engaged and involved mm-hmm. to change the policy to create a better health system for myself if that makes sense i think that's brilliant i feel like in only a few minutes you got to such a key part of this discussion because terms like meaningful involvement even I I, I question that term as well because we say it all the time but we never say how or when or I I find that the specifics it's always about we want to meaningfully involve people living with NCDs we want to meaningfully involve uh, young people and then I'm like okay cool when how with what resources will you pay the people that you involve I mean what does it mean and seat at the table, that's another term where I'm like, well, what does the seat at the table mean? What does that offer you? At what table? <laughs> I mean, what are we talking about here? And what you've talked about, Job, is, you know, when you say we want to empower or even harness the power of or any of these phrases, it puts the onus and the responsibility still on individuals instead of on these systems changes. And that, in a way, hides the issue where empowerment, enfranchisement, engagement are also trigger words for me. It's as if a certain group has the power that they can then imbue others with. They can bequeath it to others. But then it it raises questions around, well, how did the first group define that power? You know, by whose definitions are are those bases of power uh, crafted? And whose purposes does it serve when these groups are, are empowered? Um, what motivates, what funds that empowerment? And it raises a lot of questions and instead could be distracting from the real work that needs to be done to, to build more equitable systems, stronger health systems that serve the people. I feel like you've really hit the, the nail on the head with, with one of the biggest issues of this, this type of discourse. Yeah, that structural piece is it, it's huge. It's exactly, I, I feel like it, Michaela had another one that drives me crazy as a seat at the table of me as a cancer survivor or a patient or an advocate. We, we talked about it with our youth, one of our, our conversations around youth advocacy and that there's always that name in front of, it's a youth advocate, a patient advocate. The, the goal is, is to put people at the table and then there's no actual, are you going to listen to us? Yeah. Are we actually going to be part of the decision making? And so as, as much as as much as a goal can be to have more platforms to hear the voices of who needs to be at the table, um, I think trying to, with the language we use, but way more so with the actual actions, is, is how how does that power get 
more equitably distributed. And I think what scares people about that is to truly move towards a situation where people living with NCDs within health equity, health systems have power means it's a little less power for the traditional experts or the people that have often been given mm-hmm. all of the decision-making authority, like doctors or policymakers, Ministry of Health officials. There's so, so much interest in hearing from people living with. But is it just to listen so that everyone else can take our advice and, and move on with their own decisions? Or is it really about shared decision-making and, and shared power? I think grassroots community and and you can think about this in terms of the anti-racism work and what Black Lives Matter is doing or environmental justice or health. Grassroots advocates kind of strip away all of the fancy language and just talk straight to the kind of power and structural stuff around yeah. building people power, about doing things as a community. As I've been trying to kind of use more of that that I really gravitate towards personally as someone who follows these more progressive movements and power building groups into my professional space in the way that I kind of professionally orient myself. I uh, think Brene Brown has a really good definition of like the different types of power because there's power over, but there's also power to and power with. And there's one more that I can't remember, unfortunately, but I love changing that. And, and, Maya, at the beginning of the call, you talked about accompanying, accompanying, ooh, that's a tricky word, or walking alongside. And that type of partnership certainly makes a lot more sense than empowerment. Yeah. And can I just add on to that? For me, what I, I was talking about is also like when you go to a community, like the system is, high, it's a hierarchy, right? And mm-hmm. so a lot of the terms are bringing people up to a certain level, right? But then if we can get the system to come down to the level of the people mm. and remove the table such that it's just people talking, so you would have a conversation. You'd have what you were talking about, service service to the people, where you had shared conversations or you, you, you're able to talk to the people who can make a change, but then you don't feel like they're superior to you. There's an equality there because we're all people at the end of the day trying to live our best lives, right? Mm. So when we're on the table or even when I was talking on a platform for WHO, the informal uh, consultation of people living with NCDs, right? I feel one thing that the advocacy in the health space has gotten right is at least we're no longer targeted, like we're no longer people like considered our conditions, you know, we're people living with rather than conditions. Like I'm not just a kidney patient, I'm a person living with. So the inclusion of a person there kind of brings back the essence of me and a community. You know, it's not just I'm a person, I'm a kidney disease patient. It recenters you. Yeah, it puts you first. I think that that, that language yes. is really deliberate. And there has been a great global shift towards like people living with, people affected by. Um, you see that in the HIV AIDS community too, you know, people who inject drugs instead of drug users. I mean, it, it came from the HIV community. That was sort of what I was going to jump in of. They they sort of started the really important shift to yeah. take exactly what Joe said and to let individuals be individuals. Yes, we have mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z, but we're also 
activists and scientists and students and, and, and policy makers yeah. and industrial engineers and all of the <laughs> other identities that we have. Yes. Well, and you said, Joel, uh, you're saying all the right things tonight, though. The, the point you made about removing the table, I don't know why we're not talking about that more. I feel like that's really brilliant. Why do we have a table that we all have to sit around to begin with? Like, who made, who built the table? Obviously not the people who exactly. are being invited to a meal every third year. Like, yeah, I think we need to, we need to dismantle the table. <laughs> I, within the weeds of stuff that I've been doing at PIH or conversations that have been happening in kind of U.S. advocacy and that sort of stuff, I've had this long, long standing conversation with a good friend of mine and, and lots of other people in my life about whether it's better to pursue advocacy that's more realistic, kind of incremental change within the structures that we're in, or flip the whole damn table. And we've always said flip the table instead of remove the table. I like remove the table too. There, There is an element to which sitting within the structure reinforces the structure. Yeah. yeah. But also the practicality part of my brain comes in there are also small steps that can happen within the structure. Is it better to do those sort of positive, smaller steps while looking at the bigger disruptive kind of advocacy? Can you do both at once? How do you do both at once? Or is anything other than flipping or removing the table insufficient? And that's where my head gets stuck and hurts and <laughs> like goes around and around in circles. But I think it has to be disruptive. Honestly, because the moment, as you say, when you you're trying to make small changes within the system, the system is a higher it's a hierarchy, and so there's power involved. So when you're making small changes, the people who are working against those small changes in those positions, because the system is working for them. The only reason we're complaining about the system is because we're outside the system, most of us, and we're struggling. We, you know, there's there's an element of us not being served the way we expected outside the system. So when we go and say, hey, you're not doing this and not doing that, you're kind of criticizing a system that for some people is working. And that's why I, I'm of the opinion it has to be disruptive so that it takes out a lot of those people and the elements that we don't like. And hopefully what comes together is a bit better. I don't think it'll ever be perfect. Mm -hmm. I don't, in my opinion. I just don't think it'll get to the point where We'll have a perfect system, but we'll have a system that at least is better than the previous one. It reminds me of, um, I was listening to a podcast earlier today interviewing the poet Maggie Smith, and they went back to her poem, Good Bones. She's, she's barely optimistic about life and humanity, like... But she says she, you know, she always thinks about how when we talk about a house, we talk about its good bones, its good structure. And what I felt listening to that was... We have, we have some of the pieces, and certainly people have so much of this potential for good. It's just about how we put the parts together. Like, we do have the good bones, but we've, we've I don't know, we've reinforced it with a lot. Like, this, the people who reinforce and strengthen the system do it to, the, to their will. I like the idea of flipping the table as well. I feel that's really... <laughs> Talk about disruption. Just start going into every meeting and being like, thanks for the seat, flip. <laughs> no, it's become, I mean, it's become a shorthand for, for me and a friend. Um, the, the whole idea of, of kind of 
getting into the, the structural change that, that starts to get advocates in trouble, that starts to scare people, piss people off. Like, there are certain places that when you start really digging into power and trying to rebalance that, the efforts to to kind of minimize someone's advocacy or segment someone into a certain part of a conversation, that's when that starts to happen. Mm-hmm. And at what point is that the only goal and should be the only goal to really rebalance rebalance power and fix the system? You have to break it first to fix it. Yeah. There, there are a few other words that I, I have been thinking about a lot since a BMJ op-ed that came out last year. I might have shared this with you guys. Three words the author questioned. One was tolerance. The other was diversity. And the third word was inclusion. And the author basically said, when you use these words, diversity, inclusion, tolerance, it still assumes a majority group and an other. So it otherizes. When you're having tolerance, it means that you're, you're being tolerant of something that is not part of the status quo. When you're asking for diversity, you're, you're asking for diversity amongst, again, a majority. Or, or when you seek inclusion, inclusion into whose domain? That's really made me question some of that language selection as well. I totally agree with you, Michaela, on that. Because, as you're saying, the word already gives the impression what it's not. You know, like, if, if I have to say this is like this, it's probably not. You know, if, if it was the way we wanted it to be, I wouldn't have to create a word for the opposite. So I, I do agree with that. I think ideally it's about the same thing I was saying, breaking down barriers rather than building up. I feel like it's a band-aid. It's mm. like you're building up a way to temporarily fix what's really wrong, you know, because when you put a band-aid, it, it, won't, it won't heal you. So the real, the real thing we should be talking about is why do we need to include or why do we have to diversify? Then mm. those are the conversations that will lead to something, in my opinion. Well, that's a really good question. I think we, we, we came up on this within Partners in Health because we're, we're looking at hiring. We've, we've had someone in a role around uh, diversity and inclusion and, and don't right now and want to kind of hire that back in in response to particularly some of the stuff that's happening in, in anti-racism within the U.S. And there was a lot of interest in, in not using those words at all because mm-hmm. of, of some of the, the just sort of blanketing that I think those terms become or some of the the things that job had mentioned and we decided to keep them because it's around hiring a role and there are search terms and things that pop up when you when you do an employment search but we included the word equity and and everything that we've we've done since has that that equity word that I think was sort of an attempt to, to get into the why are we doing this and it's not just it, it's that piece that it's the same reason we use accompaniment. It's not working for, but working alongside. Mm-hmm. Ac- equity is the reason why you would be doing things in, in diversity and inclusion. It's not just to have have a more diverse group of people. It's that there is an equitable set of, like an, an equitable environment that's moving forward. Yeah. No, I, I just... Uh, I really I, like equity. <laughs> Sorry, Michaela. No, no, no. I, I also, I do like equity. 
I think it's a great word, equitable. I like the way it sounds, but I guess I am also, we've, we've used it so much, especially around the SDGs and leave no one behind, that I do find myself questioning it like every other term, just in terms of like, when we employ that term, what do we mean? How will we stand by it? What actions support it? And it's not to say that there aren't incredible activities taking place, but when we talk about equity and then we engage people living with people who are youth, you know, and we talk about equity, what is the environment in which that conversation is taking place? Um, what are the opportunities that are given to the people who are often put, volunteering their time for those discussions? Obviously, it's an incredible goal. I think social justice is another really important terminology for this time. And then, of course, like human rights and human centeredness. But I really am looking for the, like, this kind of freshness around that lexicon somehow. Yeah, well, and it becomes these buzzwords that, mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's right to health and, and equity and social justice and all of those terms. There's also, there's also a whole lot of buzzwords we use in global health that stand behind principles I'm less excited about, like, some of the stuff around sustainability and accountability yeah. and yeah. like there's all these words that we use that because it becomes the term that everyone starts responding to, everyone is then allowed to interpret it however they want. And by mm -hmm. using that term, you get points yes. that may or may not correspond to how equitable you're being. And that, I mean, that's one of the threads that has continued within this work around this hire of like, okay, we made a decision around the language, how much are we actually moving forward, the, the principles behind me, behind it, do we all agree on what equity means, do we all agree on what right to health means, when it gets into the actual, the actual specifics of how you get health care to everyone who deserves to have access to health care, and I think you see that in, in the spaces that that me and Joe have run up against as, as kind of people living with. Meaningful involvement has become one of those terms within the NCD space yeah. um, that now everyone is responding to. Mm -hmm. And it's not always clear whether people are just using the term to use the term or they really are putting, it's putting like, their money behind it. One of the things, because in my role, I, I manage all of the communication. We have a, a youth team now. And, you know, they put forward terms like, the meaningful involvement and the seat at the table. And one of the conversations that I had with them early on was like, you get to set the tone. Like you're hired to be at the forefront of this dialogue, which means you can use language that you haven't just heard in these conversations. You can introduce new language and demand what you want. And the challenge that you have, and another colleague of mine points this out all the time, is that you can take what someone says about, you know, we need meaningful involvement and a seat at the table to benefit so-and-so for equity. And you could say, wow, that quote could be applied to health, education, ec economics, like future of work. You could, you could literally take it, copy, paste it, and put it in any sector because it's become so hollow. And, and I found that like very, very interesting because sometimes we say so, so much and we use all this exactly the language you've identified. And then you sit down with it and you think it's clear and you start to look at it and you go, oh, huh what do I do with this? Like, where does this lead us? And does this speak specifically to the issue in an informed and inspired way and in an intentional way? Or is it in fact that we've all been talking to each other in this epistemic bubble for so long that we, we like, we don't, we don't even know what it means anymore. 
So I I hear what you're saying, Michaela, and you're right. It's it's about the language, and when you really look at how human, how we communicate as humans, as as beings, we created the we created language to communicate. But how effectively is this language communicating what we mean? So I'm sort of at a place where I'm thinking that even though we change up the words, the new words will become old. The new words will become mm. used, like how we're talking about meaningful engagement, meaningful involvement. What does that mean? A lot of the concepts we are talking about right now are very complex in in their nature because there's so many factors, there's so many people involved. So me using one word could mean something different to me as to to you or to to Maya. One word could mean so many different things to all the people who hear it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of like it's a complex problem, and the solution I believe won't be as simple. So even though we have the right words, it's like how those small parts come together to form a solution will also be a very detailed response or answer. For sure. Well, yeah, and it's kind of pointing back to if you have the prettiest, most appropriate, most equitable, there's two pitfalls. You can have, you can be using the best possible language and have that be devoid of meaning if that doesn't come with the actual action there's also places where not using the right language, but maybe doing the right things mm-hmm. could, could be similarly problematic. And so mm. I think, I think you're, you're raising a really good point of, of it is really important to critically examine the language we're using and where that's reinforcing the problems we're, we're pushing up against. At the same time, it's not the sort of end-all, be-all. You also need to be pushing up against things effectively and and have the the weight behind the words you're using. I had a when I was thinking about this question. This is kind of going off in a different direction, but I was really curious, Joe, as someone else living with something significant. Mm-hmm. Um, I struggle a lot with the language that I use for myself in just everyday conversation. I I actually despise the the term cancer survivor. I think I've talked about that in a previous episode where it it sort of puts things in battle terminology. It is something that I to survive cancer. I I survived cancer, but there wasn't anything that I did or one, I didn't win over someone who, who didn't make it. And so I've, yeah. I've really disliked the word cancer survivor. I know other cancer survivors who have liked the term for other reasons, and that's amazing. But I end up using it all of the time because it's two words instead of yeah. a paragraph to say I'm someone who, in 2010, I was diagnosed with cancer, and now I the paragraph that it would take to actually meaningfully explain to someone my relationship with cancer I'm never going to say in a casual conversation and there's places where the kind of people living with NCDs feels the same of like I'll often say I'm a patient advocate out of just pure it's two words instead of six words um or I work with doctors and I know that makes more sense to doctors than I am a person living with a chronic immune disorder and a previous cancer patient. And yeah. so I was, I was like, curious how you navigate that just as a human running around with friends <laughs> and family. 
because I get stuck all of the time and then feel yeah. like it's counterintuitive to what I'm doing professionally where I'm, I'm really being specific about only using those words. Well, I totally agree with you. For me, it, it boils down to what I was saying about language and how limiting it is. And so when I, I've had of cancer patients, cancer survivor over cancer warrior, because uh, some people here use cancer warriors or mm. like a chronic disease warrior. And for me, that's even, I don't, I don't like the, the word warrior because it seems like you're going to war with a disease. Mm. But that's my opinion. And I do get what you're saying about the word meaning that you've, yeah, you kind of beat something. And that's not the case. There's a lot of other factors involved, including a big chunk of luck. And maybe that's what the word survivor means, because people who survive, there's a lot of luck there. And we can't really explain. I don't see the, the, the other side of the coin where just because you survived and other people didn't, they're not survivors too. It's, it's, it could have been me and you who didn't make it. You know what I mean? It's just how life is. Sometimes you make it and someone else won't. So I do struggle with that too. I consider myself a person living with a chronic kidney disease, even though what caused the chronic kidney disease was an autoimmune condition. It's such a complex way to describe what I really kind of relate to. But in a really quick way, I just say I am a person living with a kidney transplant. And, and that, to me, is an oversimplified version of who I am, but it gets the point across. Well, and in the context of COVID, I've actually, in, in some cases, when I don't really want to go into the specifics of, of who I am or what, I'll often just say I am in a medical risk category. Yeah. And and just and I've started to use that and, and kind of take that on of people usually don't ask questions. I am in a medical risk category. I am in a medical risk category for multiple reasons and kind of multiple parts of, of my illness identity. Yeah, I find myself, as much as I sort of catch on this professionally, I find myself getting caught on the words I want to use with myself among people that aren't working professionally within global health. I was, I think this was Leslie Odom Jr. I was watching an interview where there's, there's a movie that came out. It's called One Night in Miami. It's, it's um, Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, and Jim Brown, who was a football player, all hung out one night after, after Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay at the time, won the heavyweight championship. And there's this movie that's kind of uh, this conversation between them and their thoughts on black power and their identity as, as famous black men at, at a moment of, of 1960, I think it was 1964. And Leslie Odom Jr. as an actor in 2019, or in 2021, oh my God, I just put us back two years, mm -hmm. um, in 2021 was talking about how much of, of kind of his experience of everything that everything that he is seen as is someone who has pushed against boundaries or been resilient through challenges. Mm. And while it's true, he was talking about how there are moments where he just wants to be known on his own merits, on his mm. own individuality as a Broadway singer or mm. as a as an actor who's not a brilliant black actor. I am so 
incredibly privileged in so many ways, but there was this piece that I connected to of where do I really want on my mantle and what people think of me to be built around the things that I have gone through because mm-hmm. I have gone through the ringer in terms of health and illness um, and it has absolutely shaped who I am and and the kind of resiliency that I have built has changed who I am as a human and there's ways that I want people to know that mm-hmm. there's there's also moments where I'm like this is nothing to do with I'm, I'm not just a someone living with yeah. an NCD. This is something that I'm just, as a human, doing on my own merit. And mm-hmm. I, I've, I've thought a lot about that response to a very different issue and source of identity. Oh, mm. gosh. I was just agreeing with Mark, what she just said, what Maya said. I don't know. I think there's so much food for thought that we've had in these 40 minutes or so. And we also kind of talked about how, to Job's point, like, even if we make up new words, <laughs> the issues might arise all the same. And it's really about connecting that language to intention and to action. That that was a lesson that my father imparted to me very young. He would talk about like conscious language and that the the words we use, you know, with the right intention help to, you know, like manifest the results that we want. So we have to be very intentional. And I had I had a teacher who would never let me say things like, oh, that kills me. She was like, it does not kill you. <laughs> you know, think about the words that you're using. And that is something that I think we always start with that. We always start with that consciousness when we start to introduce terms like meaningful involvement uh, and seat at the table. It comes from probably a very important place and moment. But then over time, it just wears down. So... I'm wondering kind of, you know, how we, how we address these barriers. Well, in a positive note, I know this podcast and what we've been doing and hearing from you and, and Chantel and Grace about, about navigating mental illness and, and being part of the, the mental health advocacy community, I have just personally realized how many times I, without thinking about it, say things, say crazy or, or like the, the words that, that are so inappropriate and are flagged by, by mental health advocates. Oh, that's, that's so OCD or that, you know, those sorts of things that are a really common part of at least American vernacular. Mm -hmm. I have thought about things more consistently and caught myself more than I probably would have just because I am, am talking to you guys. So there's, it is, it is an important exercise and something that we should continue to be conscious of even if there are limitations to to language um, and it has to come with action but yeah to be continued and goodbye (laughs) bye guys bye bye see ya So, uh, hey everyone, it's Michaela. Let's do that again. I'm sorry, there was a <laughs> siren.